Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for insightful analysis and enlightening discussions. And we certainly have some enlightening discussions for you today. We're going to talk about sales contracts and leases. Look, leases are the backbone of commercial real estate. They provide the income and the safety for the tenant. And it's going to be fun today. We're going to have an attorney sort of representing each side, a landlord tenant. Then we're going to have two attorneys representing opposite sides on a sales contract. Let's start with leases first. Please welcome John Neville. He's a attorney with Arnold Golden Gregory, and he's going to take the position of the landlord today, although he represents landlords and tenants all over the country. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Also, please welcome Ryan Rivera. He's with Hartman, Simons, and Wood. He also is a real estate attorney who represents landlords and tenants. And today he's going to take the side of the tenant. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Well, we appreciate it. And gentlemen, first, let's talk about this situation. All right, so we have a landlord who wants full uh, personal guarantee of the tenant. He wants corporate guarantees of the tenant. The tenant doesn't want any of those guarantees. Uh, so tell me, first of all, John, why does the landlord, why is the landlord requiring these types of guarantees? The tenant doesn't think it's proper. Well, if we're asking for a guarantee, I've got to presume that the deal has already been underwritten, the business deal. Mm -hmm. Usually when the deal gets to us as attorneys, you know, rent rates are set mm -hmm. and credit's been examined. And the guarantee is a result of there not being enough credit with whoever's signing the lease. A lot of times, you know, people will form a new company. Mm -hmm. And when they form a new company to sign a lease, there's no money in that entity. So you need a guarantee to actually get some credit into the deal. And in your example, you know, if we're asking for a personal guarantee and a corporate guarantee, I've got to imagine that number one, the tenant entity has no credit. Mm -hmm. And number two, the entity that's the guarantor probably also has very little credit. That's why you would want to go to a personal guarantee. And Ryan, why does your tenant say that's ridiculous? <laughs> <laughs> well, first off, we're obviously not going to give both. Um, but I think it's important to distinguish between the type of tenant. Uh, if I'm representing a, a larger national anchor tenant, obviously, uh, you probably will not be getting, uh, certainly not getting a personal guarantee, most likely not getting a corporate guarantee either. Um, if it's a local, uh, maybe a, a franchise operation um, or some sort of local mom and pop, certainly understand the need for a personal guarantee. Uh, I'm going to want to limit that though, uh, you know, especially if, if this might be first business, second business that my client is operating, um, we might be looking to grow further down the road. And the last thing we want to have exposure to is unlimited personal guarantee on each location. Uh, so the first thing I'm going to ask John is that at some point this has to burn off. Yeah, yeah and, and I think it's important to note that you know this, this my way or the highway is not good for business for a landlord or a tenant. So we're going to look at some uh, some ways to maybe uh, mitigate risk, some ways to negotiate and work out these things. So you know what would be another position that you'd be willing to look at as a landlord rep? Well, I mean, it, I, I'd first call Ryan up and, and and try really hard to get every guarantee I could get. But I, <laughs> but I, I, I think at the end of the day, again, we got to remember that the guarantee is a credit facility. It is what's used to underwrite the value of the lease. It's used to give the landlord security they're going to get paid. So the more comfortable I can get that my tenant is actually going to pay me, then the more comfortable I can get possibly talking about watering down the guarantee, putting a dollar limitation on that guarantee, or some other creative structures. So typically, Michael, what I'm going to look for is I want to see that tenant performing well. I want to see some sales data to show increasing trends. You know, and I want to see some stability in the market. So to use Ryan's point, if he represents a franchisee that maybe when we do our first deal has two stores in the market, 
you know, if they have 20 stores in the market, you know, three or four years down the road, I would say that my tenant um, entity is probably a lot more stable because that business is now established in our market. So, so I you, think they can't, I think guarantees can't evolve. So you might be willing to do some sort of burn off where when certain things happen, maybe the guarantee goes away. And what might be some examples of that? Going away might be a little aggressive. <laughs> I would say, um, I, I know certainly that's what Ryan would ask for. And I would ask for it too, if I were a tenant, but I think certainly you can diminish the liability mm-hmm. um, under that guarantee whether it goes away or just gets reduced. And it's tied again to number of stores in a market, it's tied to sales figures, um, it's tied to not being any defaults, you know, that we want to see the tenant's been a good tenant and they've performed where they need to perform. And if you get positive indicators like that, you can usually have some room to negotiate. And and Michael, I will add, I will say for for the burnoff, I I would not want to tie it to number of stores in the market because Mm -hmm. if this is going to be only one or two locations that we're going to operate, so long as you've, you've received your rent, we've performed, we have not defaulted under the lease. Uh, we certainly want to see it burn off at some point, particularly maybe if we have an option term. I would agree. So, so if we go into an option period, there's been no defaults during the main term, we've paid our rent. You know, at that point, we'd like to say, you know, it should burn off. Now, as to the, the limitation, uh, I'm going to ask for that for, from day one, because mm-hmm. we don't want to, you know, if there's a default year one, year two of the lease, we don't want to have full exposure from what might be a five or 10 year term. So commonly, we'll ask for what we call a rolling guarantee, which would be from the date of the default, the landlord could recoup, you know, maybe 12 months or on the high end, 24 months uh, of rent from that point in time. That way we're not full exposure, but I, I know John's going to yeah, take but issue the, with the, that. The problem with the, the mm-hmm. 24-month roll out of the gate mm-hmm. is that effectively, if I'm a tenant, I can book that as a 24-month lease, mm-hmm. right? Because I can know that if I have a tenant entity that has no money in it, mm-hmm. and I have a guarantee that's limited at 24 months, then effectively, you know, the risk has been mitigated by that operation, by that business at 24 months worth of rent. As a landlord, especially on a credit deal, where I'm looking to have that lease count mm-hmm. towards the value of my asset Mm -hmm. you know it's a huge financial difference michael as you know better than anyone to have a two-year deal versus a 10-year deal and to get the full value for the asset we need it booked as a 10-year deal so yeah this goes beyond the scope of the conversation but i'd rather talk about sales kickouts or other things to give you the protection from a failing business than to give you a two-year liability cap out of the gate and and i understand your position and uh, i I think that's the benefit of both of us sitting on both sides of the table being landlord and tenant in in our daily practice i will say ultimately bottom line it's a business call um working on a deal as a matter of fact yesterday where the guarantee issue arose and and they wanted the rolling guarantee from day one I, i was on the landlord side on that particular deal and we weren't comfortable with it but we could tell that tenant just didn't have an appetite for the risk so that was a decision where the landlord ultimately said to get the deal done we agreed to it now to your point I think the common compromise is so long as you know no defaults, rent has been paid during the first maybe two, three years, at some point then the rolling guarantee might kick in. Totally okay. agree. And there's also some other alternatives, right? So so quickly some other alternatives throw in, but I guess one could be if the landlord is spending a lot on a build out for sale on an office property, uh, they might suggest, the landlord might say, well look, guarantee uh, that what I'm spending to build the space out for you, right? Maybe amortize it where it reduces over time. Right. Uh, That's I'm, better than nothing, even yeah. though I think that gets the landlord just back to the starting line, right? Yeah. Because the problem is the landlord's spending money to build the space out. Yeah. So the landlord's going in the hole, yeah. right? So if you're yeah. getting a guarantee just for that allowance, yeah. effectively all the tenants saying, yeah, I'll get you back to break even. Well, no landlord's going to do a deal just to hopefully not lose money. Right. The landlord's doing a deal so they can make money on the rental stream and, and improve their value. Good point. And as you said, it's always business driven. If he wants that tenant, he wants that tenant. Uh, you know, and I've also seen landlords in a situation where they really needed a tenant. They were doing some build out and things. And they said, well, look, I understand you don't want any personal guarantees, but what if you guarantee uh, the 
the uh, lease if you're in the space and not paying. So in other words, if you can't pay, you get out so I can release it, fine. But if somehow you're, you're locking up my space and not paying, then you become personally liable. So there's a lot of different ways to do it, isn't there? Sure. Yeah. And I think the key is that you don't, you know, that one side doesn't say it's this way or the highway. Look, there's a lot of ways to work this out. Well, let's talk about another um, argument that a lot of people have on leases in retail, and that's co-tenancy, right? So um, the uh, landlord doesn't want any co-tenancy in the deal. Ryan, your tenant wants to be able to have a lot of rights if the anchor tenant uh, goes dark or, or moves out, right? So why do you need that provision uh, in your uh, smaller or mid-sized tenants lease that if that anchor leaves uh, that they well, have rights? And you hit on it. So if it's a smaller or mid-sized tenant, mm -hmm. uh, obviously a lot of times those anchors will help drive foot traffic to the center. It's going to help drive my business. So it's important, especially going in as, as maybe a smaller shop tenant, uh, whether it be local or national, that those, you know, I call them the named inducements, the anchors are there and operating. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll tell you the other thing I'm going to ask for maybe is if I'm going to a center where there might be a department store or some sort of anchor that's important to my business, uh, I'm going to ask for that. I'm also going to ask for a percentage of occupancy of the shopping center. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes 75, 80% of the center uh, being open and operating for a retail business. Um, you know, something, again, the retail foot traffic that's really driving you know, and, and helping my sales. Uh, so that makes sense. And John, I, you know, a lot of tenants have found how important that is, but so have landlords, right? And how the issues, uh, why does a landlord not want it? There's, there, there are so many little buzzwords and, and, and catchphrases thrown in that answer by Ryan. I don't know where to start. It was a great answer from a tenant's perspective. But I think, you know, the most important thing we need to remember as, as developers and, and landlords is that co-tenancy was what caused in large part, some of the big failures of 2007, eight and nine. Mm -hmm. you know, they used to be given all the time and entire centers and developers fell apart because of co-tenancy rights that were liberally granted. I do think that for some national tenants that are not anchors, that to ask for or expect some level of co-tenancy is reasonable. Um, I think the landlord's got to have flexibility. So if the anchor goes out of business, that that anchor can be replaced. I mean, think, you know, uh, Circuit City, for instance. Um, there are other examples where we never could have guessed someone was going out of business and they did. Yeah. So if you can have those protections on the downside and when things fail, you may be okay. Well, stay tuned. We'll have more on negotiating leases. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today we're talking about sales and lease negotiations. We're concentrating on leases right now. We have John Neville, who's playing the part of the landlord rep, and we have Ryan Rivera, who's playing the part of the tenant side. And guys, I'd like now to talk about lease renewal options. So uh, Ryan's client, the uh, tenant, wants a renewal option. Uh, when their lease expires in five years, they want to be able to renew the lease at a set rate and they want that locked in to be able to have that option. They'd like to give two months notice prior to give that, uh, to exercise that option. And, and uh, John, you represent the landlord. He doesn't like tenant renewal options. He doesn't want it at all. All right, first of all, why, Ryan, does the tenant want these renewal options? 
Yeah, first of all, I want more than one option. Um, <laughs> of course you but, do. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as a tenant, I'm investing a lot into the space. I'm investing mm-hmm. a, a lot into the shopping center, if we're talking in the retail mm-hmm. uh, world, or, or it might be an office building. And, you know, if my business is performing well, I want the ability to, to control that space and, and to stay for not only potentially an additional five years, but longer. Um, so, again, in light of how much I'm investing into the space and, and my, if my operations are performing well, you know, I want to make sure that I can kind of stick around on my own terms. And why do you need the rent set that you have a set amount of that rent five years from now? Well, that way I know going in with certainty, and, and you said, you know, giving kind of 60 days notice. Mm-hmm. I, I know when my notice date comes, what I'm looking at, what my what my rent exposure is going to be going forward. Mm-hmm. You see some deals where maybe they look at alternatives where it's not a fixed rent. And, and that is a situation where as a tenant, I actually don't like that because uh, what well, might be a fair market rent or some other sort of calculation, I, I don't know with certainty at what that point, what my rent exposure will okay. be. Okay. And why, John, as a landlord, do you not want this tenant to have these uh, renewal rights? It's a one-way street. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I have no commitment, but yet he's asking for a commitment from me. Yeah. And and that's the problem. It's predictability for my asset and asset value. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't say for certainty in year 11, for instance, if it's a 10-year deal with a five-year option, I can't say for certainty that I'm going to have a tenant in year 11. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he can say for certainty that if he wants a store in year 11, as long as he doesn't default, he's going to get it. And it's a big problem in the last year of that lease, right? Now, well, the, the 60 days the notice is ridiculous. I mean, we, we would never ever agree. I mean, the, 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 I would say even in trying to be objective, I think the fair window is 180 days, six months. And, and, and uh, typically our deals will say closer to a year. And the reason is, is that you need time to be able to find a replacement tenant for that space. In no way, shape or form in 60 days can you find a replacement tenant, get a deal signed and someone else open. So, you know, out of everything you've said, that that was offensive. Um, <laughs> that, that was the most offensive. So what's a way that you could compromise what's another solution uh, from the landlord side that you could give the tenant to make them feel good well i mean i I think number one you could um have a have the options tied to performance you know we have seen that because if the tenant's being successful you know landlord's going to want them there too so you possibly can say that as long as the tenant sales are x number of dollars per square foot, then in that case, the tenant will have an option. And Ryan's not gonna like that because that sort of takes some control away from his tenant. Mm-hmm. But my logic there as an owner is that, you know, probably a tenant that's performing that well is not going to want to leave anyway. And frankly, if the tenant's performing that well, they're really benefiting my development. You know, we wanna give them that right, that inducement to stay in that certainty. As compared to a tenant who's failing, you know, the last thing we want is a failing tenant renewing. And but, how about the set rental rate? Uh, are you gonna let that happen or do you, would you like something else as a landlord? It depends. I mean, mm-hmm. I. I I sort of actually agree with Ryan on this one that I think the set rental rate gives some predictability. Fair market value is a is a, a open door to negotiate, and um, it can be complicated. It can be expensive. It can get more brokers involved. No offense, but be, <laughs> you know people give the attorney jokes all the time, so we'll we'll make a broker crack Excellent. here. I like but uh, a, a fixed rent, if it's calculated correctly, I think can benefit both parties. And we do see a lot of these leases come back where the landlord says, "Yeah, I'll give you a renewal option, but it's going to be at a market rate." What would you say on the tenant side when the landlord comes back and say it's going to be market rate at the time? I think the challenge when you do a market rate option is it gets very complicated. You know, you have one party that's going to present you know their proposal for fair market value. You know, most likely they'll be the landlord initiating their proposal. As a tenant, I'm certain to disagree with that most likely. Yeah. So then you get into the the kind of the, the process for trying to reach and agree upon a number, and that's not always easy to do. Um, one compromise that I've seen where where you have a landlord not wanting to give an option um, instead of a five year initial term with five years at market rent, I've seen some clients I'll say, look, I'll do a ten year initial term but give me a gross sales kickout. So, so that would obviously be in the retail sector where if my store is not performing well in year four, 
I have the ability, at least at that point, to make an election to terminate and walk away, or I'll stay committed and, and commit to the full 10-year term. And these uh, kickout clauses can be uh, problematic for a landlord, can't they? Well, I mean, it's just it's it's the other side of the coin of what I was yeah. just describing. The, yeah. A kickout clause can be problematic, yeah. um, but, I mean, they are becoming increasingly common, I think, with brands that are national and successful yeah. that maybe are especially expanding into a new market. Yeah, and I agree they are. It can be a challenge for the landlord because when the landlord's trying to finance it or sell it, uh, the lender and the buyer are looking at it. Well, if you've got a, the tenant has a kick out in three years, that's a three-year lease uh, to them uh, a lot of times. My, but my, I, even as a landlord, though, my comment to that would be, and listen, I would rather not have a kick out at all. Ryan knows that. But, oh, but yeah. if I'm having to negotiate a kick out, the logic is, again, I do not want a poor performing store in my development anyway. Yeah. It pulls down the value of my development. So if I'm yeah. going to do a kick out, I wanted a mutual kick out. I want the right to be able to say if their sales aren't, one million dollars if that's the magic number that either the tenant or the landlord can terminate and that allows me to protect my asset great discussions let's move on to another uh, aspect of leases that could sometimes be extremely important and are negotiated uh, pretty strongly in some leases and that's uh, strong tenant self-help clauses where a tenant has the right if the landlord doesn't perform uh, some maintenance or other things involving uh, the property the tenant can come in and do it so Ryan the tenant wants com- really strong strong worded uh, self-help clauses. Uh, They can fix the roof. They can pay the mortgage. They can do a lot of things. Uh, Why do they need all that? You missed a few areas. We also (laughs) want the ability to go into the common areas as well. Parking field, critical access points, (laughs) and uh, and exercise self-help there if they're not maintained. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think it it comes down to if I'm representing an anchor tenant versus versus maybe a, a local or a small shop, there's a distinction. If I'm representing an anchor tenant, you know, that parking field, the, the common areas and, and maybe the sidewalks, access points, those really are, I view those as part of my space. Right. You know, they're critical to my business. So that's going to be an area where if the landlord is not maintaining and repairing properly, I do want the ability to exercise self-help. Yeah. If I'm a local kind of small shop tenant, I'm going to ask for those, those self-help rights. I know John's going to want to limit them though. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to give them. <laughs> no, I, I, I think you, we actually agree on this to some degree. I think if you're an anchor tenant, um, it is reasonable most of the time to be able to establish a critical area that has to be maintained and it's not the entire development but it is an area that's in reasonable proximity to that anchor space that if it weren't maintained that anchor could be in trouble yeah but the landlord doesn't want you know he landlord know he's going to have a roof he has to replace at times you know he's going to have things he doesn't want the tenant uh, getting involved michael we're never giving self-help on the roof i mean (laughs) and and, and in seriousness the the roof is something it goes into the weeds a little bit but the the roof and other components of the property have warranties so so that's an alternative right is to do self-help on some items and Absolutely not others correct. and specify no no because <laughs> yeah. um, that's especially that's the area where i'm, I'm probably have the most concern roof leaks mm-hmm. you know that's when you start talking about water intruding into the space that could damage personal property could mm-hmm. present safety issues right, and you're going to indemnify me then if you if my roof warranty goes away because of some self-help that you exercise then i need a full indemnity and to be made whole if your my... roofing contractor is readily accessible uh if the cost is is reasonable I, I will agree to use your roofing contractor but if i can't get a hold of that individual or that company and there's a leak and all of a sudden we have a safety issue I guess what we call an emergency type repair um, 
I may not guarantee that. Well, I think an emergency may be a different circumstance, but at the end of the day, I think anytime a tenant takes something into their own hands, there's risk. Yeah. Anytime a landlord doesn't perform an obligation under a right. lease, there's risk. And all this is a risk assessment as to how far does a tenant or landlord want to push the issue. Yeah. But to your point, a smaller shop tenant, typically if that tenant can get self-help within their space, they've done pretty well. Right. And it does depend on the deal, how bad the tenant needs the space, how bad the landlord needs the tenant. Right. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate good points. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Well, stay tuned. We're going to work on a sales contract next. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Stay with us. Excelligent, the resource professionals like CCIMs, CBRE, JLL, Colliers, and Bull Realty use for market intelligence. Commercial Search is the site to market and find available properties to buy, sell, or lease all over the country. Visit CommercialSearch.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. Thanks for being with us on one of the 42 stations, iTunes, YouTube, or the show website, CREshow.com. Well, today we're talking about contracts and leases, the backbones of the commercial real estate industry. Now we're going to focus on sales contracts. And always remember with leases especially and with sales contracts, you know, what we're talking about now is just barely hitting the surface of these types of documents. Make sure that you have a real estate attorney who practices in your state when you're doing any type of contracts or leases. And I also recommend that he works in concert with a real estate broker uh, that also works in the specialty. So, you know, also have the business aspects covered. Well, now we're going to talk about lease uh, contracts. Carter Stout is with us. Please welcome him. He's going to take the side of the purchaser. He's a lawyer with Stout, Kaiser, Madison, Peak, and Hendrick. Couldn't you add some more names to that, Carter? No, I think that's plenty. <laughs> it's good to All be right, here, Michael. Thank you. And Tim Ramsey, he's an attorney. Now, both these attorneys uh, represent landlords, tenants, uh, and sellers and buyers. But Tim's going to take the role of seller today. He's with Bodker, Ramsey, Andrews, Winograd, and Weinstein. And Tim, um, you're going to take the side of the seller. Now, the situation here on this first one is the seller... Um, the purchaser, let's say, wants uh, reps and warranties in the contract where the uh, seller's going to rep and warranty every, everything they're giving them, all the numbers, all the leases and everything. And the purchaser wants those reps and warranties to last forever. You know, if there's anything ever wrong in the deal, uh, he, he wants the seller to be responsible for it. Uh, now, then the seller says, hey, wait a minute. No, you look at the property, you look at the leases, and you buy it or not, you don't, and that's the end of it. So, Carter, why does your purchaser want these reps and warranties to survive the closing? Uh, well, Michael, there are, there are certain uh, reps and warranties that I can, I can independently investigate. Um, I can do an environmental assessment and have some idea of whether there are any environmental problems. Uh, but on the contrast, if they're tenants and I'm buying this building uh, for the uh, rental income, I don't know if the tenants are paying rent. I don't know, uh, you know, if there are side agreements as far as the leases go. And so I need a rep and warranty from the seller that uh, gives me some assurance that uh, as to what I'm getting or not getting. All right, makes sense. And Tim, why does the seller say, no, look at it and buy it or not? Why doesn't your seller want to give reps and warranties forever? Well, the seller wants to close the transaction, get their money. Oftentimes it's an investment partnership or other kind of investment group involved. We need to be able to distribute assets, close out that partnership and move on. Um, you also may have 1031 exchange issues involved. We want to cut off any kind of lingering liabilities that may come back later on. Mm -hmm. From a, an inspection standpoint, 
buyer typically can look at the property, uh, reach an independent evaluation of the value of the property, and then be prepared to move forward. Okay. But the purchaser actually wants uh, $100,000 set aside from the closing because, like you said, the seller is a single asset entity. Uh, Once this purchaser closes, uh, that seller entity is dissolved. It has no equity, no no money anymore. uh, So they want money held back from closing. So they have something there if if your seller lied or misrepresented something. And and so what is an alternative? What, What might be a way that you could come back to them and make them happy? Well, the, the possibility of a holdback mm-hmm. is, is an option in certain mm-hmm. very, very limited circumstances. Mm-hmm. But the idea of having broad-based reps and warranties that survive the closing for an extended period of time is just something that most sellers are not willing to do. Uh, it, again, it creates all sorts of issues for 1031 exchanges, partnership agreements, and a variety of other sort of liabilities like that. So the seller might say, uh, we'll limit it to, to 12 months, 6 months, 3 months or something? The shorter the better from the seller's standpoint. Yeah. 12 months is probably the extreme that we'd want to see, and, yeah. uh, except in possibly certain circumstances. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that depends. Uh, a lot of this, you know, we've got unique circumstances with a purchaser and seller and property all vary on what's important and how important it is. If my seller is from uh, or my purchaser's out of state, they're really buying this because it's got a history of uh, uh, rental income then that becomes important to, 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 to my clients. Uh, it becomes very important to their lender, uh, and their lender may require you know, certain representations of warranties or estoppels that... And uh, so what do you say to a seller that comes back and says, all right, well, we'll, put, we'll give you $50,000 as a whole back, and we're limiting our liability as a seller on reps and warranties to $50,000, but, but this is a $28 million deal. There's lots of leases. Uh, your client's an uh, a institution, and they need to really rely on the seller's reps and warranties. Uh, and, but what do you say to that? Well, if they can, uh, you know, particularly on the tenant estoppel issue, if they can give me, a, uh, uh, on the tenant issue, if they can give me a tenant estoppel or estoppels from various tenants, then that gives me a, a third party that's uh, giving me some assurances and, and tenants are not going to misrepresent because uh, they don't want a, a new owner coming in and um, you know they're not going to be able to enforce any prior agreements if they've signed that tenant to stop it. Yeah, my objective as a seller's counsel would be to try to tailor down exactly the reps and representations and warranties that are at issue, uh, restrict the amount of liability there, and see if there's another way of solving the problem, as Carter mentioned, attendant estoppel, environmental inspection report. Good points, and stay with us. Next, we're going to talk about some more issues that come up in sales contracts. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Are you in accounting, banking, or technology? Advertising on this show is an incredible way to reach U.S. commercial real estate participants. Visit CREshow.com or call 888-612-SHOW. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. Our topic today is negotiating contracts and leases. We're working on contracts with Tim Ramsey, who's taken the position of the seller, and Carter Stout, the position of the purchaser. And and Carter's purchaser has submitted a contract, and it requires the seller to provide tenant estoppels of a form and substance that... uh, is acceptable to the purchaser, the purchaser's lender, the purchaser's title company, and the um, uh, it's it's not a contingency; it's a requirement of, of the seller uh, to do. 
and and you're representing the seller what problems do you have with uh, with this contract Tim? well a, a couple of areas pop into mind number mm-hmm. one uh, under my lease agreements that I have with tenants oftentimes and if it's a lease that I've negotiated we'll have a provision there that requires the tenant to provide an estoppel uh, however, those are awfully heavily negotiated as to what a tenant's willing to give and how often they're willing to give it. And how long do they have to give it to you. And how long they have to provide responses, et cetera. Yeah. So um, for me to then agree with a purchaser that we're going give, to give something more than what I've committed to receive in my lease agreement is something I just can't be involved with. Another issue that's uh, of concern there is the idea that it's a requirement as opposed to a contingency, mm-hmm. or I can't have it as a requirement where my client may suffer uh, damages or have a default issues. Uh, if I have a tenant that's being non-cooperative, something I can't control. Mm-hmm. Well, Tim, my, my issue, and, and yeah, from, from my perspective of representing the, uh, the purchaser, it, it's important that I have it, but I'm also financing, for example, uh, my, my purchase or part of the purchase, and my lender requires it. and. Uh, if you're not going to be able to provide that, then I may not be able to get financing. And so that those tenant estoppels are extremely important to me, um, and which leads into another issue in that the lender sometimes has specific requirements as to what that tenant estoppel needs to, to say. I understand that, you know, to some extent, you're uh, dependent on what your tenants are due. Uh, we need to look at those leases to determine what the uh, tenants are obligated to do uh, in regard to providing tenant estoppels whether the tenant estoppel uh, is part of the lease, a lot of times they're an exhibit to the lease, uh, or whether it doesn't say anything. We can provide information. The, the real question becomes proof of income or proof of revenue, mm-hmm. and we can provide information about the revenue stream from the property. Uh, there's a variety of other mechanisms. I wouldn't want to offer this on the front end, but mm-hmm. a potential review of financial statements, uh, income statements, tax returns from the seller for this entity, some other areas like that to be able to prove revenue. We also have tenant estoppels theoretically that we received when we bought the property or then we've done refinancing on the property so we can provide that that really gets into the issue of timing as well we don't want to have my tenants uh, disrupted and even made aware of this transaction until we've gotten pretty far down the road in terms of negotiation due diligence so we want to we will provide that type of information, other proof of income early in the process, but we really prefer to have the actual tenant estoppels as a, as a post due diligence closing condition. From my, my perspective of, I've got to keep a lender happy, make sure that the lender is gonna be ready to close on time. So they're gonna want those, not the day before closing, uh, but have some certainty that that's gonna happen, uh, that we're gonna have those and we can, we can uh, make the loan and get this deal closed and how comfortable are you carter on the purchaser side if the seller comes back to you and says look i'll endeavor to provide tenant estoppels uh, of the form and substance that you and your your lender like but it is going to be a contingency because i can't guarantee what a third party is going to do for you but i can try to get him to do it are you okay with it being a contingency that you just get your earnest money back and go away well i think it depends on uh, how many tenants are there what are the sizes of the tenants can you uh, provide to me the uh, you know, if there are five tenants, the three largest tenants, uh, uh, so that I've got some comfort level that the, the tenants paying the most amount of money are uh, the ones that um, uh, are, are going to provide that tenant estoppel. Okay, so there's some alternatives there that we talk about each tenant kind of separately, right, or the size of the tenants is Correct. defined. 
And, yeah. and then we've also got the old, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the reps and warranties. Mm-hmm. Uh, will the seller provide a rep and warranty uh, if they can't provide the, uh, the, the tenant estoppel? So where are you on the, the timing if, if uh, the seller's uh, counsel, Tim, says, no, we're not going to give them to you after you've removed your inspection contingency, uh, and the contract says that these estoppels are a contingency, uh, are you okay with that? Would you give me a financing contingency to make sure that if you can't provide them or they are not in the, the substance that my lender requires, could I terminate the lease because I can't get financing? Okay. And that may be a reasonable alternative mm-hmm. to bifurcate the, the inspection period in some fashion mm-hmm. so that uh, we get a lot of the preliminary uh, issues out of the way ahead of time and then have a window of time to uh, get the estoppels and anything else that may be required for financing. And what do you say as a seller's uh, advocate if the purchaser says, well, look, if it's a contingency and I'm not getting my estoppels till maybe the week before closing and you can't provide them, what about all my cost? What about my due diligence, my staff that's been over there, my, my third-party report cost? Uh, are you going to reimburse that to me if you can't provide those? That's just a cost of doing business. <laughs> we're going to try to provide. We want to make the deal go forward. Yeah. So we're going to really bend over backwards. I mean, if we've entered into a contract, mm-hmm. obviously there's been a meeting of the minds, and the seller wants to sell, the buyer wants to buy. Uh, so we're going to do anything we can to make the transaction go forward. Unfortunately, sometimes they don't go through. Mm-hmm. and. The typical rule is that each party just eats their expenses. So you just counter back, no, that's your cost of doing business. We'll try to provide them. Just trust us. Correct. <laughs> and, I, and I've had a client recently mm-hmm. tell me, you know, it's like, you know, I can't get this tenant to provide it to me, and there's, there's, they're obligated to do it, but there was no enforcement mechanism. Um, so what do you do? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's an issue. When, when, uh, I, when I'm representing a seller, I'm, I'm uncomfortable uh, guaranteeing a purchaser who might be doing a 1031 and have some real damages if you can't close that a third party is going to do something that I can't make them do. Some good points. All right, we'll stay tuned. We'll be right back with some more sales contract issues in our last segment. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Thanks for being with us. Today we're talking about commercial real estate contracts. We have Carter Stout here, an attorney who is taking the side of the purchaser, and Tim Ramsey, the attorney, is taking the side of the seller. Uh, in this past downturn, we've had a lot of lenders selling properties, and, and in the contracts it says if the seller defaults for some reason, uh, that the purchaser just gets his earnest money uh, and is, is going away. And, and Tim is representing the seller. That's what he wants. If his client defaults for any reason, he wants the purchaser just to go away and get his earnest money. But, but Carter, you want your purchaser to have full rights and, uh, and, and by law, right? You want to be able to specific performance. You want to be able to sue for damages. Why do you need all that? Well, um, I have uh, spent a lot of time mm-hmm. Uh, on attorneys, on environmental people, surveys, title. Uh, I've incurred a lot of cost, and if if seller defaults, they walk away, they've still got their building, I've just stuck with a bunch of bills. Yeah. And, um, and a lot of times, I may be in a circumstance where if I'm doing a 1031 exchange, I've got time deadlines, so I'm gonna have some, uh, you know, I gotta scramble to find a replacement property, or maybe I can't find any replacement property. 
Um, so there, there, there are all sorts of kind of implications to, to my client uh, when a seller defaults. Right, and, and Tim, uh, to, to Carter's point, the, if your seller can just uh, default and the buyer just has to walk away and get his money, this contract has no teeth. It's almost not a contract. Uh, why does your seller want to, to not have any liability if he can't uh, close? Well, I find the circumstance where the seller actually truly defaults is pretty rare. Mm-hmm. What usually happens is there's some issue that's come up that's made the property uh, possibly a title issue, survey issue, something like that, that the seller's using as much effort as it can to, to resolve, and then the, the buyer is not willing to accept that, or the buyer's lender is not willing to accept that. Um, the well, seller has actually tried in good faith to, to satisfy, um, but there's just impossible to do it. The idea that my client's going to be exposed to damages uh, for that to occur is, is something that most sellers are just not willing to do. The, the concept of uh, specific performance is something I think most sellers are comfortable with. Mm-hmm. The idea that if the seller just fails to go forward, uh, may have found a better deal or something like that, that uh, the idea that, that they're going to be compelled to do the closing may be something they'd be willing to give on. I think that that uh, provision has some teeth in it. I don't see people exercising it very often because you know, as a buyer, I'm, I'm looking to buy a piece of property and not, not get involved in a lawsuit. Uh, chances are uh, the seller uh, is not going to be happy either because I'm probably going to uh, file a, a notice in the court record so that it's going to restrict their ability to sell the property. So it's probably not a win-win for, for either side. Uh, and so I don't see that actually being exercised very often. So as we're negotiating the potential liability of a seller, we, we clearly want to make sure though that any kind of damages that we may suffer are going to be limited to direct out-of-pocket costs, not some sort of lost profit, consequential damages, something to that effect. All right, I want to cover another one real quick. Uh, the purchaser uh, contract, he's going to do a lot of due diligence. Uh, the seller put in the contract that he wants copies of all the purchaser's due diligence. Uh, as they're done, provided to them. Uh, Carter's purchaser doesn't want to do that. Uh, you want them because of the property's tied up. Carter, quickly, why does your purchaser uh, not want to give those up? I paid for them. If they want to buy them from me, they're, they're welcome to. Uh, you know, I spent money on them. It's going to benefit the seller. Uh, why should I give them, give them away? And why does your seller want copies of this stuff? Uh, for a couple of reasons. We may not know a lot about the property. I mean, mm-hmm. it, in today's environment, we, we actually, the, the scenario we talked through uh, was the idea that we bought it out of a foreclosure and had very limited information about it. Also, we'd like to understand from a business marketing standpoint what's wrong with the property going forward, why the seller, why the buyer may have backed out of the transaction. Right. And you also want to know that he's doing that due diligence and Absolutely. doing it timely. And then he's tied up the property and you've not got anything out of it, right? So Correct. if he does go away, you'd like to have gotten something out of it, right? It seems reasonable. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate your insight. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for joining us out there on the radio stations, 42 of them around the country, YouTube and iTunes. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty Commercial Advisors, a great place to do business. Visit bullrealty.com. Excelligent, the resource professionals use for commercial real estate information. Visit Excelligent.com. That's X-C-E-L-I-G-E-N-T. Commercial Search, the source to market and source available properties for sale or lease. Visit CommercialSearch.com. For more information on these great companies or for additional videos, podcasts, or articles, visit CREshow.com.